This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to The Full Ratchet for episode 36, where we welcome one of my favorite investors, Mamoon Hamid, to talk SaaS investing. But before we kick off today's episode, we're going to start with a little trivia. To preface this, I am planning on attending Pre-Money, the conference out in San Francisco, hosted by the folks at 500 Startups. The conference is on June 12th this year, and I was chatting with the organizers of the event, and they were kind enough to offer me a free ticket to a full Ratchet listener. I've already purchased my own ticket for about 500 bucks. Uh, I think it's gone up since then. So I'd expect that the value is around $700 or more at this point. This will be my first year attending, but I hear it's a fantastic gathering with some of the best speakers in angel investing and the early VC world, one of which is Naval Ravikant, founder of AngelList. Naval and I have recently been trading emails about a variety of specifics related to the mechanics of startup investing. And so the trivia question I'm going to ask will be related to that. And if you've listened to the recent episode 32 of The Full Ratchet, you probably have some good insight and can figure out the answer. So if you're interested in attending the pre-money conference and you'd like a free ticket, just email me with the answer. It's nick at fullratchet.net. I will randomly select a winner from those who were correct, and I will reveal the winner and a detailed answer next week. So here it is. An LP invests $100,000 in a venture fund and another $100,000 in a syndicate. The venture fund is a standard 2 and 20 structure. The syndicate lead takes a 15% carry and AngelList takes their 5% carry. Both the fund and the syndicate invest in the same 10 companies at the same terms. Both the fund and the syndicate invest at the same time in each company. The fund invests the same amount from their investable capital in each company. The syndicate invests the same amount from their investable capital in each company. Out of the 10 investments made, five fail completely. Two of the 10 return at 1x, two return at 3x, and one company has an outsized return yielding a total portfolio return of 5x on invested cash for both the fund and the syndicate. So the question is, does the LP make a larger return on the 100k invested in the fund or the 100k invested in the syndicate? So shoot me an email, nick at fullratchet.net, and let me know what you think. Is the better returner the fund or the syndicate? And if you can explain why, great, but I don't require an explanation for you to be eligible for the free ticket to pre-money. So I will be announcing the winner of that ticket next week. Okay, for today's episode, we are talking about SaaS investing. Here's the interview. Today, Mamoon Hamid joins us from Palo Alto, 
He's a general partner at the Social Plus Capital Partnership, a VC firm based out in the Bay Area. And Mamoon has invested in iconic SaaS companies such as Box, Yammer, Slack, Greenhouse, Intercom, Castlate Health, Acton Software, and dozens of others. Mamoon, thanks so much for the time and for joining us today. Thank you, Nick. So can you walk us through your background and how you got into venture? Sure, yeah. So I moved to the Bay Area in 1997 right out of college. I studied electrical engineering at Purdue, so naturally the place to go was Silicon Valley in 1997 uh, when all the rage was chips and SGI and Intel. And so I came out here to come work for a Silicon Valley-based semiconductor company called Xilinx. I joined as an engineer, did that for three years and uh, got to learn and go right through the the first internet boom more on the sidelines as a guy who built chips for the networking and telecom industry. So I got to see that really play out uh, over the course of a few years. And then uh, I knew that I, I didn't want to be an engineer forever. So I started to think about my next steps and got recruited to a team that was tasked to identify new growth areas for the company right as uh, the bubble was bursting. And for my company, most of our revenue was coming from the telecom and networking space. So we had to quickly find a way to get out of that or at least find new areas to grow from. And so as part of this new startup within a, in a larger company, which is kind of my, my taste of a startup in when things weren't so great. So uh, actually got some pretty awesome responsibility to go after consumer and automotive with our company and grew that to be a real business. Uh, became a hundred million dollar business over the course of three years that I was responsible for it kind of an amazing leap to make from an engineer to like starting a little a business and then taking sort of leadership of that business and growing that into a real uh, real revenue stream for our company. Sure. Yeah. So and that was sort of like my operational career as an engineer and operator in the Valley. And I was fairly young at the time still. I graduated college when I was 19. So by that time, I was like wow. 24, 23, 24 when I started thinking about my sort of next thing. And uh, one of the things I've been doing at that company was also helping evaluate some investments out of our corporate venture fund. So we had this $75 million corporate venture fund that was investing in semiconductor startups, but also in like ETA startups and networking startups. And so got a little taste by helping them evaluate a, a number of companies. And that was my sort of first foray into like venture investing. And that was in the back of my mind. I was thinking about sort of the next thing I'd go think about doing in my career which led me to think about going to business school, sort of more less so about the, the learning and more about sort of having time to be away from the Valley for a couple of years. So applied to one school, got into that one school and moved to Boston to go to Harvard for a couple of years to sort of think out of the Valley echo chamber, knowing that I'd want to come back to the Valley and do something in technology and really in, in venture capital if that came to be. So I had my eyes set on venture capital for, I guess, a long time. And and made sure that I, I spent that summer between first and second year of business school in venture capital. So found myself an internship at a, a small VC firm in the Valley, got a chance to look at some interesting companies during that summer and, and really sink my teeth into what it meant to evaluate companies and what it meant to do diligence and what it meant to be at a VC firm. I liked it enough to really consider as a full-time thing post-business school and set my sights on finding a, a job out of business school inside of venture capital. And that led me to U.S. Venture Partners, which at the time was probably close to a 30-year-old firm 
that had done a lot of semiconductor investing over the course of the 20 years prior. And some of the best semiconductor investors in the business were actually at USCP. So what better place to join as a guy who had a semiconductor background to join USCP and learn from some of the best in the industry? And that's what led me to USCP and my sort of my first venture capital job. As a student out in Boston, did you get a sense for the venture environment out there and the mindset and how it was different from the Valley? I frankly didn't spend much time thinking about staying in Boston. And it was it already had changed over when networking and telecom really did have a bust. And the next generation of Boston companies were really not starting in Boston anymore. We really were moving to, this is like, you know, Mark was starting Facebook. And that was in 04. He'd actually think, tried to raise money from Boston-based firms. And I don't think he got too far. And he moved out to the Valley. So at the time in Boston, 04, 05, like, Things were not very tech-centric at all. And in fact, most of my classmates didn't want to have to do anything with tech. And I was among the very few who would come from tech who wanted to definitely go back into tech. Uh, so tech was definitely not hot. And you sort of give you a, a sense of timing. This is when Google was going public. And the people who were going to Google at the time at the $97 IPO were considered to be like, you guys are kind of silly for going to this company that's fully priced as a public company. Yep. And it's obviously had a, a 10x since then. One lesson there is uh, business school students are <laughs> laggards when it comes to, in fact, they're a leading indicator of what's potentially to go down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So um, myself probably included. Did you have exposure to Mark? I'm, I'm curious if you had an opportunity to invest. You know, one of my special investor questions that I ask a lot of folks is why I passed and I can only dream about talking to a Boston VC that passed on Facebook. Yeah. So I was at Harvard, you know, uh, when Facebook got started, but I was at the business school where it wasn't really a thing. So right. when I did my summer, uh, you know, for here in the Bay Area, um, one of my, uh, the partner I worked for, his kids were at Stanford and they started using it. And he told me, Hey, this thing, this Facebook thing is blowing up. You got, you know about this? It's, you know, you're at Harvard. You sh should know about it. And, uh, that's the first time I actually heard about it was from, uh, my partner's kids and I got onto it and there was like no one from the business school on it. There's a couple of people I think I connected with as friends who were not my real friends, but they were at Yale and at UPenn and a couple other places. So it's not until after we graduated from Harvard, did the Harvard business school students get on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like I said, you know, not early adopters of great stuff. That's awesome. So I, I'm a Hoosier myself, and I'm pretty glad that I didn't tell you that when I asked you for the interview, or you might have passed <laughs> on that. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough basketball year. But I'm curious, how does one graduate college at 19? So the way it works is uh, you just skip a bunch of grades. So I grew up in, in Frankfurt, Germany, and I started my academics in German school, actually. First grade was German school, and sort of end of first grade, my parents decided, wouldn't it be a great idea for you to go to an English-speaking school instead? Because who knows if we'll continue to live in the Germany. My dad's job was in Germany, but there was always this thing in the back of their heads that as sort of expats in Germany that we may move, we may go, go to another country, and it's better to have an English-speaking education than a German-speaking education, so it's more transferable. And so I interviewed at a couple of American-speaking or English-speaking schools, and uh I don't know, this thought crossed my mind and my parents' mind like, hey, why don't you just skip second grade and go to third grade only because it seems so easy. The curriculum in the second grade curriculum that I was testing through was seemed so straightforward and easy. So I just skipped second grade by switching schools. 
and ended up in third grade. And then we actually ended up moving uh, when I was in fifth grade and we moved to Pakistan where school starts off off cycle by six months. So instead of going from fifth grade to fifth grade, I moved, went to sixth grade. So gained a year. Then we moved back to Germany later in life. And instead of going to ninth grade, which I should have gone to, I went to 10th grade. So I got two half years and that, that got me another year. And then I skipped a year in college because I tested out of a bunch of AP courses in high school. So that's how you get three years. Wow. <laughs> I've never heard that before, but that's pretty incredible. So, all right. So sorry for getting into the weeds. Today, the topic is SaaS. I was thrilled to come across your SlideShare content that you put together. It was robust and so thoughtful. So very pleased to have you on the show today to help us walk through this topic. But we've talked about it before on a number of shows, and I wanted to get, in your words, the definition of SaaS, and if you could give us an example of what is and what is not SaaS. So SaaS is software that is delivered for rent and paid for monthly or annually without installing any software behind your own firewall. So it's not a license. It's not the professional services that go along with installing something or getting something deployed. It's purely software that you pay for and you get some direct benefit from as a service. Box is SaaS. What their SaaS solution offers is storage as a service with an application around that storage. Yammer is a SaaS company. It offers enterprise social networking to every single employee in a company. And rather than deploying it behind the firewall, like something like Jive, which is wasn't SaaS for many years, Yammer was SaaS. What's not SaaS, for example, is our companies that take a percentage of revenue, they're delivering software like Stripe, but they take a percentage of that gross transaction value as their revenue. That's not SaaS to me. It's a company that has advertising or lead gen revenue is not SaaS. So technically, Zenefits today is not a SaaS company because the revenue that they generate is from health insurance brokerage fees. So they are the broker of record for even a company like ours. And the revenue that they generate comes not from the companies like ours, but it comes from health insurers that write them a check for getting them customers for their health insurance. So those are not SaaS companies to me, but that gets into the technicalities of the revenue that companies generate. So for me, it's pretty clear when we look at a SaaS company, what the kind of metrics and what the kind of revenue quality we're looking for to call it a SaaS company. And there's a lot of SaaS companies. There's lots and lots of SaaS companies. I mean, at last count, there's probably like, I don't know, 10,000 SaaS companies. Yeah, plenty of SaaS companies out there. It sounds like the way that you look at it is sort of an intersection between the fundamental offering, the technology, as well as the business model or monetization? Correct. So can you give us an overview of the SaaS segment? And you talked about how many SaaS companies they are. Can you talk about what the constituents are within that greater SaaS segment and a brief history of its evolution and growth? Sure. So maybe I'll start with the Technically, what a SaaS company requires you to be in order to be classified as a SaaS company. But there, the, what predates me is when a SaaS company used to be called an ASP, an application service provider. And there's all kinds of lingo that was used in the early 2000s to classify SaaS companies. And one of the key requirements was always this notion of a, a multi-tenant architecture, which essentially meant that you had a single version of your software running somewhere in the cloud that could scale infinitely to the number of customers. So you didn't have to install 
another version to satisfy the needs of another customer. It was one version with a single configuration that scaled across lots and lots of customers. Right. And that was sort of what defined uh, defines a SaaS company. And so the the evolution, you know, really, if you go back the last 15 years, if I look back at the first SaaS company, this again predates my experience. I look back at companies like Concur and Salesforce and Success Factors as among the sort of first SaaS companies, companies that started out in the late 90s, maybe like 99, 2000 era. And they were the ones that first exploit this notion of have one version of the code in a, a cloud-based service or in a public data warehouse where you could offer it to lots and lots of customers. And so if I could recall, Salesforce started in 1999. I think Concur was maybe even before that. Um, but those really, I think about the first generation of SaaS companies. And then the next generation of SaaS companies really fell into this camp of almost like consumerization of enterprise. And that's when I think about Box and Yammer and Zendesk, I, I call it sort of the the consumerized SaaS companies where the application doesn't look like your your Netgear router screens and it looks more like consumer software that now you use inside of the enterprise. Yep. The next generation, as I see now, is like the third generation. The things that we're kind of investing in uh, right now or in the last few years we have are the likes of Slack and Greenhouse and Intercom. They're almost like the even more so focused on the daily use case of the office worker, the knowledge worker, more than anything before that. If you look at just even the transition across uh, the first, the second, the third, they start to look more and more like consumer companies than enterprise companies in terms of the product look and feel. Right. So if you look at the sort of overarching then, if the software industry worldwide is $400 billion, SaaS is only still like close to $20 billion today or plus or minus. So that's like 5% of the overall software revenue in the world. It's still only SaaS, which obviously we see as a lot of opportunity for our companies and for ourselves. Right. So it's transitioned over time from more infrastructure and security to a lot more consumer offerings. Yeah, I would say kind of the nuts and bolts of running large companies. You know, when, let's say, you looked at the Siebel deployment and you're a small company and you have to spend $2 million for your 50-person company to deploy Siebel, you're just scratching your head like, what's the ROI of this? Am <laughs> yeah. I ever going to use it, right? And that's why Salesforce came to be. It was like, well, I can offer it to you for $100 a seat per month per salesperson. So you have 20 salespeople. Okay, that's that'll be $2,000 a month, $24,000 a year, instead of the $2 million probably that you would have spent for licenses and deployment and all kinds of other crap that didn't make any sense. And by the time you deployed it, the feature set might be obsolete. And a lot of enterprise software, licensed software, became obsolete by the time it was deployed. So SaaS really allowed, you know, and this is completely amplified now, is that those who couldn't really afford it, the TCO, the total cost of ownership, made so much more sense for smaller companies to go this SaaS way by paying by the seat by the month rather than buying the license for your whole company. So what happened is that a lot of the basic stuff like human capital management, or, uh, HR software, financial planning software, expense management software, Salesforce automation, CRM, that's the kind of stuff that was the first generation that really went the way of SaaS. And, you know, we've got a number of 10 plus billion dollar companies that come out of it, including Workday and uh, Concur sold for eight point something billion. And we all know how much Salesforce is worth. And 
There's a couple of companies that success factors, uh, which got acquired for about three something billion. Um, I'm sure it would have been a much bigger company today or even Omniture, which was the first sort of SaaS based uh, analytics company that got acquired for not a huge number, uh, relatively speaking, in the couple billion dollar range would be worth a lot more in 2015. But a lot of consolidation did happen towards the end of the last decade where a lot of the first movers either consolidated and some are still standing alone as our standalone companies. I used to run product for uh, uh, about a $170 million division of a conglomerate. And I'm thinking about how easily adoptable SaaS would be as opposed to some of our offerings. <laughs> we had a mix of software and hardware, of course, but the purchase authority required and to your point, the ROI required to justify that expense decision or that capital expenditure is a huge hurdle and makes for really long sales cycles. But if you can ramp up on a per seat basis for a monthly fee and always pull back, if it's not delivering any ROI, I imagine it's a, it's a much better option. Yeah, and that's the point about we've moved from a world of top down to bottoms up where it used to be the CIO would sanction the adoption of a particular application, like Box. If it's storage for every single employee, it would be a CIO decision. But what happened is instead, you had individuals inside of marketing adopting it because it made their life easier as they were working with their marketing agency, uh, their ad agency. And then they started to share with them and also share with their colleagues internally. And then it spread from marketing to product. And then the whole business unit adopted it. And then instead of just the business unit, then you had people from other business units starting using it with the people who's from the initial business unit. And then the whole company adopted it. And that's the success that companies like Box had was this bottoms-up adoption uh, where people could just, you know, the freemium just worked to get lots and lots of people into their funnel. And then they converted by using their own credit cards, eventually leading to paying on their credit card even for their department. And then over time, someone on the IT side actually getting involved to do a whole company by deployment. That's the case with lots of Fortune 500 companies where uh, adoption sort of happens through this bottoms-up mechanism. And that's been the beauty of SaaS is the ability to grow with your customers and also grow the complexity of a product with your customers. So a company like Box probably couldn't have closed Procter & Gamble in its first year of existence. But by the time there were 10,000 users on Box from Procter & Gamble, we had all the features necessary to appease the needs of an IT buyer from a security and control standpoint. That's been the other beauty of it is like the ability to grow with your customer base over time. And uh, that's sort of, you know, something that doesn't get talked about a lot is, but, you know, you just can't on day one close these massive long sales cycle customers just because they have different ways of making decisions than individuals do. Real virality instead of faux virality, right? <laughs> but <it's laughs> yeah. More like a, a productivity pill that permeates the organization. Yeah, and that's something we think about a lot is, Rather than selling shelfware and making lots of money off of no use of a product and a zero ROI or our intent, even as investors and I'm sure people who build the products, is how do I build a product that people will actually use and love and get value from? And that's really a determining factor in how we make our investments is we think about daily active use products. The tools that employees at companies use on a daily basis, it's the first thing they open up just like with email into in their browser window when they get their day started and it's the last thing they close down. What is that tool if you're a product person, a marketing person, a salesperson, a customer support person, whatever your role might be, what is that one tool? And 
or two tools. And so that's what we're looking for when we invest in these companies. This company, I do consulting for a variety of companies, and one of which that I have a large engagement with right now is using Slack. And I've seen this thing just proliferate throughout the organization. Everyone's on it now, and it's kind of a, a necessary tool. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just an unprecedented growth story. <laughs> Happy to talk more about it, but yeah, it's, uh, I've never seen anything like it. I'm curious, I don't want to get too far off the script, but this is good stuff. So when you invest in a SaaS company and you're advising them and looking for their sort of hockey stick growth, are you also looking for them to sort of build out that offering and upsell and exploit adjacent opportunities around that core offering in order to move the needle on the monthly per seat dollar amount that they can capture? Yeah. So... Yeah, I would say the way it typically works out, if it's a freemium business, it's a free version of a product, and that's the case with Box and Yammer and Slack. They all had free versions of the product. And the paid version, in the case of Box, it gave you more uh, storage. With the case of Yammer, you got some more security and control. In the case of Slack, you get search and integrations. So that's the next layer up. And then the layer up from there is like typically enterprise-grade features. Uh, certain certifications, things that make the CIO and CISO feel good about deploying software. And so that's sort of the very linear way of ratcheting up pricing per seat. And it works pretty well. And I don't encourage my companies to sort of fan out too much from there because there's enough market size to service 1.5 billion knowledge workers uh, with a content management solution a la what Box does. Or if you want to deliver enterprise messaging and collaboration tools via Slack to 1.5 billion, there's enough market size there. So yes, lots of features get built in over time, and but they're quite tangential as opposed to the orthogonal to what they're already working on. So you know, focus, as you know, is a is a core thing for any successful startup. And you can get pretty massive just off of one thing, and you know, as as Salesforce has proven, you can be pretty big as a, just a CRM company. And obviously, they've done a lot of things that are outside of the CRM, but that's because they want to continue to grow 30 to 40% year over year. And you can't just grow that fast at multi-billion dollar scale in just CRM. Yep. You know, sometime down the line, it would be nice to have a reflective conversation about sort of where we end up with, I know I'm using Google Drive and Asana and Slack and Salesforce and email, of course, Trello. <laughs> You know, yeah. there's there's all these tools and, and they are complementary and they all fit in the ecosystem in a good way, but it becomes a bit hard to manage everything when uh, you're working in such a wide landscape of different platforms. But Mamoon, can we talk about some of the metrics for SaaS? You touched on earlier how a business may look like a SaaS company, but the business model is a fundamental component. And I imagine... That's important because as a venture investor, you're able to analyze in a more repeatable and structured way. So can we talk about some of the metrics that SaaS companies need to manage and optimize and also what you guys as the venture capitalists look for in terms of what the metrics are and where they need to be? Yeah. So given that we're sort of 15 years into the world of SaaS, there's a lot of data now around what's best in class and what are the right metrics to track. And there's terms that have been coined like the magic number. And, you know, uh, I came up with this thing called the quick ratio. And so there's a lot of precedent for numbers and metrics now. But I'll, I'll distill it down to the ones that I think are 
super important for the companies that I look at, especially at the early stage that, I, that we look at them. The number one thing is what's your monthly MRR growth or in a given month, what does your monthly recurring revenue look like? Yep. And typically, monthly recurring revenue is decomposed into what are the new logos you signed up that month? What are the existing logos that signed up for more seats or went to a higher plan? So they expanded. Subtract that by the number of, of existing logos that actually either decided to downgrade or go down in their plan. Yep. And then subtract that finally by logos that completely churned and went away. So you add all that up and you get your net new monthly MRR. And I think every single company should maniacally track that on the monthly basis and you know look at it month by month. If it increases, that's great. If it's decreasing as a startup, it may be because your sales cycles are longer and it's a bit lumpy of a business than, uh, than a transactional, more transactional business where things should kind of continue to go up and to the right. Because presumably you're in a space that's sort of untapped and uh, you are continually getting better at marketing yourself and increasing the top of the funnel, which should mean you're getting more qualified leads and you're adding more salespeople to close those leads. So your net new MRR should always increase. If it's not increasing on a month to month, it should definitely be increasing on a quarter to quarter basis. And that's sort of like the one thing that I, I definitely look for, a key metric, net new monthly MRR growth. And Bamoon, MRR itself is typically an absolute dollar. Uh, units yeah. in dollars is is this metric also in dollars or are you looking at it in like a percentage or a, a delta uh I typically yeah i look for dollars there's two ways to look at it is in customers like the number of customers or dollars but the better thing to look at is actually in dollars rather than number of customers got it and i'm sure that that scale changes sort of as the startup progresses from c to, to a to b yeah so i would say like a seed stage company, like just completely ballparking it, just to give a sense to the audience, is a seed stage company is probably adding anywhere from five to ten k a month, or like you know in that five k a month range. Uh, a Series A company is adding ten twenty k a month of recurring. So annualize that, right? Which means that if you're adding ten k a month of MRR, that means you're adding one hundred twenty k a month of annual recurring revenue. And if you added that every month for the whole year, you'd be adding 1.44 million of annual recurring revenue. So if you did that just on a flat basis and you didn't even grow, at the end of a year, you'd be at one half million of revenue. So Series A companies start to add more than that a year, and then you scale it all up. And I would say um, we're seeing companies add anywhere from, I'd say that our Series A companies are adding in that 10, 20, 30K a month. And we've got some companies that are adding 500K a month. So it's, wow. it's it, yeah. So a lot of MR being added. Good bet there, Mamoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this last metric you just told us, it sounds like it's a bit of a hybrid between the MRR churn and some of these other things to really arrive at a metric that's very useful for you guys. Before we get into the quick ratio, can you talk about some of the other traditional metrics that a lot of VCs will look at and a lot of SaaS companies will measure and manage? Yeah, so for me, the, the net new MRR number, it really encapsulates everything about a business. It encapsulates how you're able to close new deals, how you're able to manage your existing deals, and how happy your customers are 
or unhappy they are because they're churning away completely. So it encapsulates the whole essence of a company into one metric. And that's why I like it so much. And so other things you can look at, and they're, they're great things to track, are gross churn and net churn. Gross churn sort of varies by the type of end customer you're selling to. If you're a large enterprise company, your gross churn is typically much lower because typically you're doing annual deals and your first year you may not even have any churn. And the second and third year, the sales cycle was longer and it was harder to get in, but it's also harder to get out. So the gross churn on enterprise deals is lower. But if you're selling to SMBs, it's easy to get in. It's just easy to get out of the software. Yep. The churn gets to be higher. And when you look at this thing, a net churn, everybody's looking for a negative net churn, which means that for every dollar that I'm generating today from my customer, the next year I'm generating more than a dollar. I'm actually, my cohorts are expanding their revenue over time. And that's something that every good SaaS company has negative net churn. And again, it's something that we always look for in a company that is able to show net churn because in an early stage company, if you're a one-year-old company, it's really hard to show expansion of your MRR from your existing customers because most have been only with you for months. So <laughs> yeah, you right. could, it only makes sense if you're looking at year two, three, and four of a company. But it's certainly something that you want to track. Other things that you track are average deal size, you know, average ACV, average contract value. We'll look at price per seat per month. Then I start tracking things like sales efficiency. So how many reps do you have? How much quota does each rep carry? You know, you multiply those two and you get your quota capacity. Then you find out how much of that quota was attained by them. And that's a percentage of sales efficiency. As companies get more mature, we start looking at things like LTV and CAC. But I'm not a huge fan because LTV and CACs typically assume a lot of things. And you can start to see it show really attractive LTVs and CAC. But really, there's so much embedded into those numbers that I think a lot of times you lose sight of really where things are. So I try not to focus on those two things. I feel like I'm reading David Scope's blog all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal -deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal -deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. 
All right. Can we talk about the quick ratio and or yeah. any new and additional metrics that you guys look at? So, yeah, the quick ratio is just whenever I eyeball a company's net new MRR chart, my eyes just kind of go straight to this bar that has what's above the line and what's below the line. And it's just like a simple heuristic to figure out, hey, this is working or it's not working. And because it's such a quick thing to do, I call it the quick ratio. And it really is more relevant to companies that have, again, a below the line that's significant because they're having real customer churn or they're seeing customers contract more so than expand. So it becomes more relevant in your two plus and beyond, really. And is it a true ratio? Is it the additional MRR over the last MRR? Or? It's, a, it's a true number. Like Essentially, you know, you take what's the new logo MRR yep. and the expansion of that, of existing customer MRR, so that's above the line, and you divide that by what's below the line, that's contraction MRR from existing customers, and you add to that the churned customers who completely canceled. Got it. So let's just say, and you give a month, you're a Series A company, and you added 15K of new customers, and then you had existing customers add 5K. That's a total of 20K above the line. And your existing customers lose 2K, and then you had some existing customers who completely canceled. Let's say that's another 3K. So below the line, you've got 5K, and above the line, you've got 20K. So the quick ratio on that is 20 divided by 5, so 4. And that's sort of actually not, that's a completely okay quick ratio. Got it. So it's it's kind of similar to the original new expansion MRR. It's just framed as that ratio? Exactly. It's That one chart, like I said, it kind of says a lot of stuff. And one of the outgrowths of that chart is the quick ratio. Awesome. I love when you can boil down all these competing metrics and various ways to capture the true value and attempt to put those into something that makes sense in a singular metric. Cool. Okay. What advice would you have for founders of SaaS companies regarding the way they should structure and present their material to a venture capitalist? Given that there's so much data now on SaaS companies, I mean, uh, including their own, and there's so much public data on public companies now, it's pretty important to be up on the numbers. Like yep. you want to track every number, you want to present every number, if it makes sense to your business, whatever, like, you know, you have to contextualize it to your company. If you're selling to large enterprise, you may want to include like how much time it takes to close a deal because you may not have a lot of sales data and number of customers may not be that high, but like your ACV is relevant and the ACV growth over time may be relevant because your first like five deals may have been sweetheart deals and your sixth, seventh and eighth deal actually were more representative. It all varies based on your business, but you know, it's incumbent on you to figure out what to present. But all the basic metrics of a SaaS company, that's like table stakes. And even if it's not presented in the main deck of a company, it should be part of an appendix in case someone cares. At the very early stage, when companies are either at idea or maybe they've got some traction, how do you make sense of these metrics? And how do you advise them on making sense of the metrics when you don't really have a whole lot of historical data to work from? Yeah, I mean, if you have like, let's say five customers, it's pretty hard to you know, draw any conclusion from <laughs> even ACV or price per seat. It's just going to be all over the map, right? And that's why when we're looking at a, a seed stage company, we're making really a bet on the team in the market. And we don't do many of those, but when we do, it's, it's because of that. At the Series A, we're expecting to see dozens of customers, if not hundreds of customers and MRR that's approaching 100K of MRR. So 
there, depending, let's say your monthly per customer is $1,000, that's 100 customers. That's a lot of customers to actually see what their adoption is like of your product, how many users are actually inside using your product on a daily basis. There's a lot of things you can eke out from 100 customers. And that's, again, on the entrepreneurs, tell us, paint the best picture why or the realistic picture why their product is so great and why people love it so much. It's because it's used. And so it's important, again, to go back to what you think is the right metrics to present as opposed to us. We'll ask the same questions like, what's your MRR? What's your gross churn, net churn, ACV, price per seat? And you might just like, well, it's kind of like all over the place right now because we're just figuring out our pricing plan or the best comp to us is Box or Zendesk, and that's how we're going to price it. And we're modeling ourselves after, again, a comp that already exists out there. Mumun, I've heard about this Social Plus Capital Partnership as this partnership of philanthropists, technologists, venture capitalists. Can you talk a little bit about the firm and what you're focused on? Yeah, we've got a core focus as a firm on addressing multi-trillion dollar industries that haven't been transformed by technology. We do a lot of investing around healthcare, education, and financial services because we think that technology plays a huge role in all of these. And that's our core focus. So those three areas and then also enterprise, which is where I spend a lot of my time, as you know. Between those, these are all very deep, like we're fishing in really deep waters, solving big problems. These are companies that can be multi-billion dollar, 10, 20, 30, if not $100 billion companies, um, especially some of the companies that we've backed in the financial services and the healthcare space, like in diabetes, for example, can be massive, massive companies. So we feel good about investing in companies that truly transform society. And that's sort of kind of embodied in our name a little bit with the social capital. And we think that the most capital value, enterprise value can be generated by touching the most humans possible. And so that's the social part of it, touching lots of people in society. And that's sort of our mission. If there's any topic in venture that you would like to hear addressed, what would that topic be and who would you like to hear speak about it? Wow, that's a good question. Let's see. I think you got me on that one. I've heard from a lot of people. I mean, I've had the, again, like a, I'm a student of the venture business. Actually, you know, it'd be great to hear from someone who was operating in the venture business in the 70s and 80s, like Don Valentine or Pierre Lamond. You know, like yeah. how's, how's it different from, from back then? You know, and I think actually Pierre Lamond is pretty active still. It'd be great to have Pierre Lamond tell us about how things are different. All right, Mamoon, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Twitter, email. We will link up Mamoon's Twitter and email in the show notes. Mamoon, thanks so much for joining us. I feel like I learned more today than I have in, in months. So appreciate the time and all your insights. Thanks, Nick. Really great to get Mamoon on the program. Let's recap some of those key takeaways. Number one is what is SaaS? So SaaS started out as companies referred to as ASPs, Application Service Providers. This was software that was one version with a single configuration that scaled across large numbers of customers. And on the business model side, the key factor that makes for a SaaS company is that the software can be used in exchange for a recurring fee similar to rent. It is not available for purchase, nor is there some sort of performance dollars, revenue share, or advertising fees. As long as a user pays for the recurring fee for their seat, they have the right to use the software. All right, the second key takeaway is the success and growth of software as a service. 
Why did SaaS companies get traction and disrupt traditional enterprise software? Mamoon discussed two main reasons. Number one, by paying per seat per month, a company's TCO, total cost of ownership, was much more palatable and scalable with use. A company could roll out a SaaS program to a select group of employees for peanuts instead of adopting an enterprise solution with mass installation requirements for hundreds of millions of dollars. Essentially, it's a way to reduce significant risk and time wasted while in parallel assessing the value that a tool contributes to your business before making a big bet on it. And in particular, for small companies, this was a great way to scale their usage of the software commensurate with their growth of the business. The second main reason that was cited for the success of SaaS businesses had to do with user adoption. In some cases, SaaS companies have used a bottoms-up approach instead of a top-down. What's meant by this is that the individual user adopts and incorporates the SaaS software into their daily workflow before the business leadership has made any decision or potentially even before they're aware that the platform exists. Through a freemium model that encourages a user to get others to adopt, the SaaS platform can form a large user base within a company and become embedded. It is at this point, once a critical mass of employees is dependent on the SaaS program, that the enterprise must make a decision on how to move forward. And in order to unlock more features, enhanced efficiency, or greater usage from the SaaS program, then the enterprise starts to pay a per-seat license fee. All right, the third and final takeaway for today is advice for SaaS founders and early-stage SaaS investors. We discussed how many early-stage startups will not have a long enough track record to present meaningful metrics. But even if a startup doesn't have the traction and numbers to date, they absolutely can frame their forecasts and their projections through the appropriate ratios and demonstrate to investors that they understand how to manage this type of business. What comps and similar SaaS businesses are you basing your model on? When is your Series A fundraise projected to occur, and does your forecast reflect a fundable SaaS company at that time? And it's not just about the fundraising process. More importantly, these metrics reveal the strengths and weaknesses of a business. If a founder is managing the business to these metrics and their quick ratio is 2 instead of Mamoon's preferred 4 or greater, what's the source of the low quick ratio? First, they can ask if it's a growth issue or a churn issue. Then if, for instance, it's a churn issue, is it lost customers or is it retraction of dollars per customer? This can allow better outcome-focused management and reveal the source of challenge areas, allowing them to be assessed and countermeasured. All right, let's wrap up with our tip of the week. And of course, this week's tip is SaaS metrics to measure and manage. On today's show, we talked about a lot of different SaaS metrics, and I wanted to take this week's tip to define each, review how they work, and talk about the preferred level of those metrics. And remember that this only includes those that we reviewed today. There are limitless other metrics that one can evaluate, but we covered a lot of the critical ones, so that's what I'll review here. First, we'll start with MRR, Monthly Recurring Revenue. Simple enough, in a business where use of software is exchanged for a monthly fee, this is the most fundamental component to measure. Number two is net 
new MRR. As Mamoon said, this encapsulates everything about a business. He calls it the engine of SaaS. How you're able to close new deals, how you're able to manage existing business, and also how engaged the user base is because it accounts for users that are churning away. Remember that Mamoon's advice here is that net new MRR should always be increasing. If not month to month, then definitely on a quarter to quarter basis. There are four subcomponents used to calculate net new MRR. They include number one, new MRR. This is new logos or businesses signed up. Number two is expansion MRR. So this is more money generated for existing logos and businesses. Number three is canceled MRR. This is logos and businesses that have been lost altogether. And number four is contraction MRR. This is reduced dollars or revenue for existing logos or businesses. All right, let's move on to the third major metric category, and this is ARR. It's very similar to MRR, but it's annualized. So you just use that fundamental MRR allowing for the calculation of your annual recurring revenue. The fourth major metric is gross MRR churn. This is expressed as a percentage and is calculated based on the total dollars of churn in the current period divided by the MRR from the previous period. Mamoon often looks for companies with gross MRR churn less than 3%. Number five is net MRR churn. Here he prefers a negative number. For every dollar I'm generating per customer today, I need to be generating more than a dollar per customer the next year. Calculate this by using the new MRR divided by the previous period's MRR. The sixth major metric is average contract size. This is the dollars of revenue made per customer per month. Number seven is the average contract length. This is the number of months the average customer is retained. Number eight is average contract value. This is the dollars of revenue per customer per month times the contract length. Number nine is price per seat. This is the dollars of revenue per user per month. Number 10, we have sales efficiency. So Mamoon talked about how many reps do you have? How much quota does each carry? And then you multiply them and you get your quota capacity. Number 11 is the LTV or the lifetime value. This attempts to measure the total value of a customer over their total duration as a customer. Mamoon doesn't like this metric because it makes a lot of assumptions and it's not based on the data today. As you could imagine, you'd have to assume a lot about what the contract length will be in the future and how much expansion MRR will be charged in different periods over many years. Number 12 is CAC, CAC or Customer Acquisition Cost. Simply, the amount it costs to convert a new customer. Again, this is another metric that Mamoon treats cautiously because it also assumes a lot of unknowns based on today's data. And finally, the 13th metric we're going to look at is the quick ratio. This is the added MRR divided by the lost MRR. So any new MRR, new logos signed up, and any expansion MRR, more dollars per logo, sits on the top line. And on the bottom line is canceled MRR, 
so that's lost logos, and contraction MRR, so that's reduced dollars per logo. Clearly, this number must be positive, and it seems that Mamoon looks for companies to invest in that have a quick ratio of 4x or greater. Naturally, this will be more relevant in year 2 plus and beyond when expansion and contraction revenue can be calculated. And this is a critical metric for Mamoon because it quickly reveals if a startup is having a significant churn issue. As a corollary to the metrics just reviewed, I will also include two links in the post on the website. One from David Skoke called SAS Metrics 2.0 and the other from Derek Pilling called Negative Churn. Both are great resources if you'd like to continue reading about various SaaS metrics. So now that we've reviewed the metrics themselves, let's transition to the levels that Mamoon looks for on key SaaS metrics. First, the three levels that he wants to see. Number one is a million dollars of ARR or greater within 12 months of launch. Number two is new MRR is increasing quarter over quarter. For seed stage companies, they should be adding 5 to 10K of MRR per month. For Series A companies, they should be adding 10 to 20K of revenue per month. And the third is the quick ratio needs to be greater than four. And second, let's talk about these three factors and what one should watch out for. These are the levels that Mamoon doesn't want to see. One would be net new MRR is flat or down quarter over quarter. The second is the quick ratio is less than two, which indicates that new sales aren't converting fast enough and churn is too high. And three is as a result of the two previous factors, it often takes 18 months or more to get to a million dollars of ARR, which is not preferred. So if you're a SaaS investor or advising a SaaS company, I hope today's material was helpful. If a SaaS company is not measuring some of these basic metrics, big red flag. And conversely, if you come across a startup with $10 million in ARR within 12 months, like Slack, please give me a call. All right, that's uh, a wrap on today's episode. Don't forget to shoot me an email with your answer to today's trivia question if you'd like a free ticket to pre-money on June 12th. And show notes, as usual, will be on the website at fullratchet.net. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening.